0: This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from
1: 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, I'm going to explain to you why John Jones is not going to be fighting Francis Ngannou. We'll speak to BloodyElbow.com's Trent Smith about a story he did on the UFC's COVID protocol and its safety by speaking to a couple of epidemiologists. We're going to give you a review of two awesome fights that were made for UFC 250 in the bantamweight division. And we wrap up the story on the college admissions scandal, rich folks trying to get their stupid kids into elite universities. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays, 1 p.m. East Coast time, right here on SiriusXM Fight Nation Channel 156. And don't forget about the mailbag. LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. We got a lot of stuff to get to today, uh, which I'm very excited about. And some of it is really good news. Like when we're going to get to these bantamweight fights, oh, it's the best news ever. I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, But there's not all good news to be had here. In fact, there is remarkably some pretty bad news, too. And it's not exactly, I wouldn't call hardly any of this surprising. It's not surprising. I, if, I wish it. I wish I could say it's surprising, but it's not. But um, <laughs> Jesus, you know, time is a flat circle. What are you supposed to say? All right. So yesterday on Twitter, UFC led heavyweight champion John Jones takes to the medium to say, "Hey, I'm actually negotiating with the UFC in real time," and you're like, "Okay, well." We'll see how this goes. Now, I mean, you, know, you, you never know how reliable any of that stuff is. Plus, remember how he has like teased a heavyweight move before, and then he just signs up for a light heavyweight fight. You he didn't know what was coming or going. Okay, but then he says on Twitter a bunch of stuff, and he did an interview with MMA Junkie. Uh, MMA Junkie's John Morgan is sensational. I tweeted it at L Thomas News. But let me just read you these tweets because it basically gets to the gist of it. He says, um, "You know." They didn't want to pay me, basically. He says, before even discussing numbers, the UFC was unwilling to pay more for the Francis super fight slash for me to move to heavyweight. So that I could possibly earn more, but, if, you know, if it sold more pay-per-view buys. Like, we're not changing the equation. It's just if you sell more, you make more. He says, it's been fun, you guys. Maybe I'll see you all in a year or two. Maybe when, they, maybe when they're ready to do better business, I'll come back. Until then, health and fitness and family... As I should have worded that differently, I actually think these guys do great business. Right now, things just aren't where I want them to be. Red Panty Night for the Light Heavyweight Division, and then he wakes up the next day, actually at seven a.m., and says, I've had some time to think about it, and I'm a lot less emotional. It's just sad that the UFC doesn't see my value against the scariest heavyweight in the world. Jan, I guess you're next in line. Hashtag bad business. Hashtag shock. Now, uh, in this interview with MMA junkies John Morgan... It's funny, um, Malky Kawa's in there as well, the manager of John, the guy who runs first-round management, and he actually has a great quote, which, which I think is right on the money. He says, John is taking the risk. Where's the UFC risk in John versus Francis? They have zero risk. They're going to make a whole lot of money in John versus Francis. I mean, understand, that is exactly correct, right? Because... Yes, if one of them loses, it's not like there's nothing to be had there. But number one, if Francis loses, you have John now becoming, arguably, interim light heavyweight champion. And then going to unify against the winner of Stipe Stipe in D.C., which would be, you know, enormous. Uh, Maybe not D.C., but certainly if it's Stipe, if he wins, you would get it there. Either way, he would be ascending to a, a particularly prominent position and doing something historic and incredible. And then if Francis wins, you know, you want to talk about sitting up for unification there just as well. Plus, John could just go back to light heavyweight. Again, not to say that there's no cost to it, but the costs, I don't think, are significant. And the upside is extraordinary. So, it's not like these are rival promoters with rival fighters where if one loses and one wins, it has a really deleterious effect. You know, you really have to win or you get nothing out of it. They, they sign both guys. They get a win here no matter what. Okay. So... Mark in this particular case absolutely correct. John Jones is handling this correctly. Here is two things I want you to remember about this scenario. Take two lessons on. There might be more than this. In fact, assuredly there is more than this. Number one, stop pretending that this miserliness from the UFC is a function of the pandemic. Please stop. The fighters never got a cut of the gate. The fact that they have no gate now Changes nothing. And when everything was booming for the UFC, they still did the exact same thing. How do I know? Demetrius Johnson made this exact same plea. You want me to fight TJ Dillashaw at Bantamweight? You'll pay me extra. If not, I am happy to keep fighting at flyweight against whoever you can line up. This is not new, and he's not the only one. We've seen this over and over and over and over again. Folks. I have told people about this, they seem reluctant to accept it, but it really is kind of true, not kind of true, it's it's explicitly true. A huge treasure trove of documents were released with the court case of the fighters in the class action lawsuit against the UFC, including all the money they've made in a series of years, not more recently, but up to up to and through 2016. And how they made it, and how it was all split, and how purses were assigned, and how raises were given. Here is what we know. Between 16 to 18% of annual revenue from the UFC goes to fighters. They count it as 20, but that's because they count the U, what they pay USADA as fighter compensation. How that counts as fighter compensation, your guess is as good as mine, but that's just an accounting thing that they do. So it's between 16 and 18%. And as they make more money, of course, the percentage doesn't change, but the aggregate dollars, in fact, go up. Okay it doesn't matter what every person does. Every manager goes in there and claims that they want more for their client, that they're on a win streak, that they want to do this. Every time you see the exact same thing, they give them an incremental bump, and then they make them sign a new contract, typically is the way that it usually goes. There's really not much of an exception there ever. Their pay structure is very formulaic. Every year, they can basically count on, if you include USADA, they can count on roughly 20%. Of all of their expenses, um, of, of all their revenue going to the fighters. And again, 2% of that is roughly the cost for USADA, right? That's the exact, it never changes. I mean, it fluctuates between 16 and 18, but that's about what it ever ends up being. Okay. So we know categorically that they pay probably the least of any major sports organization uh, in North America, perhaps, you know, however you want to define it, beyond that. They pay less than MLS. They pay less than certainly the NBA or any other place where the, where the athletes have a union. So this miserliness that you're seeing here is on brand. Again, everyone's like, well, of course, they're not going to do it during a pandemic. Really? Then why didn't they do it when there wasn't a pandemic? Because it's not what they do. The pay structure is formulaic and they don't want to be leveraged. They don't want to say, okay, well, we bet to John Jones and now every other fighter behind them is going to come. And then demand the same thing. So I mentioned I wanted you to pick up on two lessons. That's the first lesson, right? We know this company does not pay very much relative to what other pro organizations pay. Again, different scenarios because those other organizations have to respond to a union. Nevertheless, though, they don't even pay 25%, okay? Doesn't happen. And we can prove it. The other thing you should you should remember here is I referenced Demetrius Johnson. And I referenced him for a reason. Because... His ultimatum, if you want to call it that, his requirement, his however you want to describe that he needed more money to go up a weight class, it didn't work. It didn't work. I don't think that what John is doing is going to work either, at least not in the short term. Something would have to really and and dramatically shift for us to get to a position where that wasn't the case anymore. If the holdout had worked for Demetrius, maybe it would work for John, but it it didn't. Now, John is making a much bigger plea about it, and Francis took to Twitter yesterday to echo the exact same sentiments, essentially, that John did. So they were kind of in message lockstep. And you might say, well, it's a pandemic, and they don't have access to the same amount of talent, and they still got to put on pay-per-views. That's all true, but remember, the volatility in the business has been substantially reduced. They get a basic cut no matter what the pay-per-view tends to do. And they get extra on top if it does really well. Okay? They they have guaranteed contracts for broadcasting deals overseas and including parts of uh, their deals here as well. There, as long as they produce the content, they get the check. The quality of the content, technically speaking, I don't think is written into the deals. So they're just going to keep making content. Now, I take John and Francis' side here. I mean, understand who they're being cheap with. They were cheap with Demetrius Johnson, the best flyweight ever, one of the best fighters ever. And now they're being cheap with John Jones, arguably the best fighter ever, if not outright their best fighter right now. Right. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And he wants to leave the weight class to go take on a scary contender and they could put an interim title around it. And then you could have a unification bout that would be absolutely enormous. In the middle of a pandemic, if you really want people to come up off their pockets, I can scarcely think of a non-Conor attraction that's a whole lot bigger than John Jones versus Francis Ngannou at heavyweight. Buddy, you would get a pretty decent uh, return, I suspect, for that. Okay. I mean, that's debatable, but I, I tend to think it'd be pretty good. And they're just outright saying no. So if they won't even bend in a situation where they, when they had a gate, they didn't bend even when they don't have a gate and they don't have right now, it looks like access to a lot of their international talent and who knows how much access they're going to have to even their native talent as this thing continues and travel restrictions may or may not get lifted and who the hell knows, they still won't bend. So I don't know if this is going to work. I tend to think it probably won't, but there understand what John is asking for, and again, we don't know the specifics, but I tend to think it's probably modest compared to what the Tyson Furies or the Deontay Wilders or, you know, certainly the Canellos ask for. I bet it's a fraction of that. I bet it's a fraction. And they still won't ban. Dude, if the best fighter ever asking to go up a weight or being asked rather to go up a weight class to take on a guy who's knocked out four of the top contenders, including a former champion, in less than three minutes can't get you a bump in pay. Other than just a percent, I mean, uh, you know, a greater bulk of the existing agreement, like you can't get a change to that. Dude, I don't want to hear anything about how what the fighters make is totally okay. And by the way, for all you donks out there who say things like, I believe in fighter pay, this is what I see. Every time this comes around, every time you have an opportunity to take a side where you know the fighter would benefit, I see it like effing clockwork. People go out of their way to say, well, not this time. Oh, there should be an interim title in Francis versus Jair. No, not this time. Oh, John and, and Francis should get a bump in pay for a potential super fight, particularly in, a, in an unusual moment in time when having a marquee attraction would be particularly valuable. No, not this time. Whatever it is, they should not have to do with the Reebok deal. Oh, not this time. Every single time there is somebody out there in the community chirping about how, well, not this time, dude. Just admit it. You're not in favor of the fighters making more money because every time you have a chance to agree to it, you don't. They are underpaid. We know for a fact from a documented, a literal documented standpoint, they are underpaid. And when they want more, they get stonewalled. Dude, what is the point of having all the fighters under one roof if you can't make the best fights because you're too cheap? It's ridiculous.
2: This week on World of Basketball, the head coach of the Spanish National Team and Toronto Raptors assistant, Sergio Scariolo joined the show, and he spoke about the Raps signing of Mark Gasol midway through last season. I really felt that it could be a great addiction to our team, but at the same time, I had to try to be objective, because my bosses were were asking you, know, Masai and Nick, hey, what's
0: your opinion? What do you think? What do you, what do you think is the pros, the cons? And that's my my conclusion was always this guy is gonna help, but because it's gonna bring more of a winning culture,
2: more of an unselfish attitude, more playmaking. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora.
1: So there was an interesting article over on Bloodyelbow.com, I guess yesterday. It's called Decent Start, but it has too many holes, which is a quote experts weigh in on UFC's COVID-19 safety plan the author of the article from bloody elbow is Trent Reinsmith and he joins us now via the magic of zoom hi Trent how are you I'm good how are you doing quite well okay Trent let's set this up here for just a minute uh you spoke to some experts about the UFC's execution well I should say creation and then execution of a safety plan but first who did you speak to
0: um, I spoke to Dr. Zach Binney. From, he's an epidemiologist from Emory University. And the other one was Dr. Um, her last name is Papaskew. And she is uh, also an epidemiologist, but her focus is infection prevention and infection control.
1: Do we know what Benny's particular expertise is within epidemiology?
0: Yeah, he's an epidemiologist. He's not he suggested that I speak to an infection control person as well, because that's not his focus. I see. He is an epidemiologist.
1: Okay. All right. So let's set this up. Um, well, what were some of your concerns about what you, uh, you know what, actually like, let's start with the good news. What were some of the things that maybe assuaged some concerns in terms of what the UFC was doing?
0: Well, I thought it was the document was written well. And um, Dr. Benny said the same thing, but the, if, and if they would have followed it, I think everything would have been, while not perfect, um, okay, because um, Dr. Binney has said in a previous interview that ideally they would have done a travel to the event and a two-week um, quarantine at the event before heading into the, 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 fight area, the fight area. So what he said now was if that document would have been followed, it would have been Dangerous, but less dangerous if they followed it. So written well,
1: follow through, not so good. Uh, by the way, I just saw this. There was a second COVID test that week, but it was only for the fighters?
0: Yeah. Um, Ariel Hawani tweeted that out. They were tested upon arrival. And from what um, the document said, they were supposed to get the test back in 24 hours Stephen A. Smith reported on uh, Sousa's test. That didn't come back till 40, closer to 48, which would have put that on weigh-in day. And then if they get tested on weigh-in day, which was what Hawani said, that result, if we're going with the 48-hour thing, is not coming back till after the fights are done.
1: Right. Do we know the results of those? No. Um,
0: the only thing I've actually heard was from um, Alistair O'Brien when he spoke to you and said he didn't get his... Um, Antibody test
1: Yeah, which is interesting because that's yeah. supposed to be come back quicker,
0: right? Yeah, so no no one has said anything about the second test and maybe that's because of the the waiver and the document that ha- everybody had to sign But it was again only from what Helwani said. It was only the fighters
1: All right, so let's talk about this. Let's we have uh, Benny. I've heard from before. I'll circle back to him Let's go to Dr. Saskia Popescu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, What were some of the things that she told you about what the UFC had done, either bad or good or could improve on?
0: Um, I think the biggest thing I took away from what she said was the N95 masks, the respirator masks for N95. And the document said that they would be supplied as well as cloth masks. And this is something I didn't know, but the N95 respirator masks have to be fitted. And they're only, the CDC only says that they should be used in medical situations because um, if they are fitted improperly, while they won't be useless, they're less useful than a cloth mask that's pretty tight. Um, And there's also the fact that the N95 masks are um, kind of uh, hard to get right now. So that was a concern for her. Um, because not only were they mentioned, but there was no fitting mentioned in the document. And she said that was a, a must have. Um, so I think that was one of the big things. The other big thing that she said that I also didn't think about uh, was the, uh, the the products that were used to clean the cage area and the locker room area and basically any area in the arena. If they had not The document didn't list if they were on the EPA list and that list is more or less uh, the disinfectants that can um, kill the COVID-19 virus. So that was a concern of hers as well. And that's not saying those products weren't on the list, but she just said that that should have been mentioned and they should have checked the list. I think those are two big things.
1: Yeah, that was interesting because I read that document as well. And then, you know, what what got my attention was when the UFC listed the cleaning products, they had mentioned them, A, by name, and B, indicated they were hospital grade. What I found kind of interesting was they did not mention where the particular antibody test came from or the particular manufacturer of the COVID swabs or the tests, which is interesting, right? Especially in the case of the antibodies, because until the FDA had stepped in, which was very recent to that time you have no idea the quality of the antibody tests. Literally half of them are just garbage. Um, so I found that a little bit surprising. Did either of them mention that?
0: Dr. Binney really wanted to know who the manufacturers of the tests. Yeah, he, he asked me that more than, than one time, that he wanted to know who the manufacturers were, and I couldn't get that information. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure he's still interested in that. <laughs>
1: Okay, so what else did Benny have to say? And by the way, we're talking to Trent Ryansmith here uh, from uh, BloodyElbow.com. Talking, about, he, he spoke to a series of experts about the UFC's COVID protocol. What else did Benny have to say?
0: Um, what he said that there was not enough screening um, because of the time that someone can have it and be asymptomatic. He said that there should be more screenings, um, uh, probably one a day for the COVID. Um, he said it was good that they were checking temperatures and having everybody go through the, the questionnaire every day, but he didn't feel the uh, COVID-19 testing was enough because we just got that one result, uh, for the, for for on Friday. Um, and that was one of his biggest concerns. And of, of course the other ones were that from what we saw in the videos and what we saw, from uh dana white and everybody else was that the way the plan was written there was many instances where it was just not followed or it was it wasn't enforced because it says in the doc that the ufc um security was going to handle enforcement and make sure everybody was staying up to it but we saw i mean even in the videos the ufc produced that there was people not obeying the uh the, the protocol and I think that was the the big concern Um, as far as he had a concern with Sousa as well, in that when he answered the questionnaire that he had been in touch with or close to someone that had tested positive, he should have been taken off site at that time and then waited for the test to be to come back. He should have been quarantined off site, which we know he was not. Um, And that was another problem. So those were the big ones, I think. Um, but they both Did, mentioned they were both shocked by the number of people that that they needed to hold the event. That was a big one from both of them.
1: In what way? I mean, we're talking about a scenario where, let's say, relative to an American football or even basketball team, it'd be significantly less, right?
0: Yeah, but I think their concern is still that it's it's still too early to to uh, to bring this on. And I think it was the uh, and. It was a, the 199 number shocked them. The number of media they both mentioned the media were they really necessary to be there? I think they're both going with it's. We're still in the the, the moment here where it's far too early to bring a big group together, even if they would have um, used the maps as they had indicated and had the areas separated. But we know the maps, and, and you pointed this out too the commentators weren't supposed to be cage side in the document, but the map showed them cage side. So how, how did they enforce that? Or did they enforce that? That's another thing to worry about.
1: Uh, Trent Smith joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. Trent, just from your own personal like coverage of this story, has there been any other laps or um, I I don't know, like both good and bad? What have you uh, liked about what the UFC has done? What have you really liked to see? changed i liked the uh
0: cleaning protocol that they would clean the the locker room areas out and limit people there i liked it that they did clean the cage area and the fighting surfaces which i felt was very important um i i don't know if the commentators need to be in the arena i didn't like the uh um the handshaking and fist bumping that was kind of I mean, because that was written in a document. That was a big one that they just uh, ignored or wasn't enforced. Um, The one thing that I would like to see not changed, but added, was that this whole document was based on getting the fighters to the arena, having them fight safely, and everyone being safe in the arena. But then there was nothing post-fight. It didn't list... um, self-quarantine for two weeks when people arrived home. It didn't mention anything about follow-up testing in those two weeks. And it didn't mention anything about care um, after those two weeks, if if they were gonna be tested or if someone would test positive. And I think that's a gap. And And to me, it makes it look like the big concern was getting everybody there safely. And then once it was complete, it kind of felt that to me, that the UFC was like, all right, now we're on to the next fight. I felt that was a big thing that needs to be cleared up and documented if they're doing something post-fight.
1: Yeah, I think mean, what worries me about the lack of adherence to the plan is that, I mean, I don't know if every part of the plan is a good idea. So in the sense that, like, we're not adhering to something that doesn't matter, okay, great. I mean, that's not the end of the world. But what, it, it, the event took place at a time where, at least in this country, the commitment to social distancing and quarantining began to fray. And people were just kind of had enough. And what I'm worried about is if you set a precedent where you can stick to the document or you don't have to, and Florida didn't really make them, what are we going to do? Where And again, I don't know this will happen, Trent, but let's say we get to a scenario where in the fall or the winter, we have a terrible flare up that comes in conjunction with the flu, right? Where now we're back to what we had in New York where we're overloading hospitals in certain hotspots in the country, and we don't have any real precedent for acknowledging the responsibility to adhere to the protocol. I just worry what, what, what will happen when we get to that, because there'll be no real push to keep any of those things alive and they may actually make a huge difference.
0: Yeah. I, I'm worried about that too, because I think they, like you said, they, they set the precedent here and it's once that's out of the bag, it's hard to bring everything back together. And um, I would have wished, I wish that Dana White would have been more on this and set a good example but he was, he kind of set a bad example by, you know, at the weigh-in, shaking hands, bumping fists, no mask, um, posing for pictures with the, uh, the medical crew with no mask on. Only one woman in the, the testing crew had a mask on. So I think it's going to be, if something bad happens um, and people start getting ill, I think it's, like you said, it's going to be hard to bring that back because the, they've already set a precedent and the, of no of of the lack of enforcement and lack of follow-through.
1: Let me ask you this one last one. If people got sick, how would we know?
0: That's a good question
1: because the document, um,
0: that I think John Nash, um, went through it with, uh, Jason Cruz. And it sounds like, um, all that detail is going to be by handled by the UFC.
1: So like, if, the, let me ask you this, like if, if Stephen A. Smith doesn't report that, Jaco could have just been pulled because of whatever reason, right?
0: Technically, as as far as what the document says, yeah, yeah. Because he, it says, uh, I, I might be wrong, but I think it says that you know they can't um, speak about it, about testing or anything to do with the testing. So yeah, unless it comes out from a leak, which could, or a, a report from ESPN, which will be fed from the UFC, probably, I don't think we will we will really know.
1: Um, yeah, that's the, that's the part that concerns me. If they had this plan and they had a commitment to transparency about its success, I'd feel much better because I don't know what's best, but I know that the results will tell us what is. And without that transparency, I just don't know what to make of any of it. Right.
0: Yeah. And I and mean, then that's always been a problem with the UFC is the transparency. And I hope that that won't be the case. And I hope that that's a part that other sports leagues don't follow with. Um, I saw a story Um, Earlier on Twitter that that was a concern um, about making players sign a waiver that says they can't speak about it. So, I mean, it's it's already happened here with the UFC. So I would hope that the uh, other sports with the associations would not allow, allow that to happen.
1: We shall see. Uh, if you want more from Trent, you can go to bloodyelbow.com. And again, uh, we will tweet the article out at MMA on SiriusXM so you can hear what a couple of epidemiological experts on this matter have to say. Trent, great work. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Anthony Smith on MMA Tonight. Is this now the moment where everyone's looking at Justin Gaethje as maybe the best
1: lightweight on planet Earth? Justin Gaethje is fundamentally better than Tony Ferguson, so I'm not sure if they ran that back if it would look much different. Maybe that was the Gaethje effect. Like maybe it's not Tony. Maybe he didn't have an off night, and Justin Gaethje's just good at making people look bad. At this point, there's a strong argument to be made that Justin may be the best 155 pounder on the planet.
2: Tuesday through Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on X. SiriusX- XM
1: Fight Nation. We got to get to this Bantamweight fight news. I love everything about this. This is so great. So let me set this up for you. Two, I mean, there's been a million fight announcements, but there's two fight announcements I'd like to focus on. The the two are Corey Sandhagen is going to fight Aljamain Sterling that is now appears to be confirmed. And Sean O'Malley is back and it's believed he's going to take on Eddie Wineland. All right, so let me give you the details of both of these, if I can. The first of them, with Sandhagen and Sterling, they are going to fight at UFC 250. I think we did breaking news for that either yesterday or the day before. All right, so we've talked about that. Um, Really, really very much looking forward to that. On the other case, where you have Sean O'Malley, by the way, so glad he's back, right? And uh, Eddie Wineland, that is also supposed to be at uh, UFC 250. All right, so now UFC 250 looks something like Nunez versus Spencer, Devin Clark versus Alonzo Menafield, Ian Heinish versus Gerald Mearshart, Juicier Formiga versus Alex Perez, Charles Bird versus Maki Patolo, Neil Magny versus Anthony Rocco Martin, Corey Sandhagen versus Aljamain Sterling, Sean O'Malley versus Eddie Wineland. All right, so a couple of, you know, missing pieces on there that I don't really care about, but um, those two bantamweight fights are incredible main event is great and then there's some other ones in the uh, as well all right so let's talk about this i've not seen the odds i'm not even gonna look at the odds let me tell you what i love about these two fights uh first of all let me pull up the rankings here if i may because i know that at the top of the division for bantamweight one is Moraes, two is sterling three is yon four is sandhagen where is o'malley uh he's not even ranked and so i'm imagining that wineland is not either okay so let's just let's, uh, let's start with the, uh, the more important of the two. Cejudo, uh, his management tells us he's coming back in the, in the summer. I mean, you know, who the hell knows what the situation is there. Sterling and Sandhagen is an incredible contest. Because what Cejudo said, which I did not think was altogether a bad idea, I thought it was a pretty good idea, was that in his absence, if he's going to give it the title, there should be like a mini tournament to see who gets it, top four guys. Well, the top four guys are Marlon Moraes, Aljamain Sterling, Peter Jan, and Corey Sandhagen. Do a little four-man tournament, and the winner of each of the semis fights off in the finals, and they get it. So if that's what they're going to do, then that means you're going to get Moraes versus Jan, and then Sterling versus Sandhagen, the winner of those two bouts, faces off for the title. If that's the direction they go, I'd love it. Someone asked me today on my other podcast, well, what if they just did this for the vacant title? I wouldn't mind that either, although it feels a little bit unfair to Peter Jan, but still, I... It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, to be honest with you. Dude, this fight is sensational. Aljamain Sterling is a guy who always had a lot of talent. There's a lot of hype behind him. And he had a couple stumbles as he grew into his own fighting style. But he has fully matured. He is such a dominant threat. He can do a lot. You know, I don't know if he's the biggest power puncher, but he is a smart fighter. He is a well-rounded fighter. I remember when Cejudo fought Marais that a very famous coach texted me out of the blue. And said that Sterling is the guy to beat Cejudo. Then, by the way, did, didn't, didn't train Sterling either, just had no connection to him. And I just think very highly of his game, right? If he is not, if he can manage distance well, uh, he's hard to beat. If he can take you down, he gets to dominant positions cleanly, uh, he can find submission opportunities easily. He's just a very, very talented fighter. Then you have someone like Corey Sandhagen who, you know, what do you even say about this guy? He can just blend every different piece of MMA effortlessly. Effortlessly. He is so good. You know, we always talk about how fighters have gotten better, but really there's a missing component there, which is how much better has coaching gotten? Because if you can just come into the sport and you can train for a short amount of years and you can do all the things that Corey Sandhagen does, okay, yes, you're obviously a phenomenal talent, but it looks like the teaching of best practices has gotten better as well. In any event, that fight, it's hard to handicap exactly which way it might go. I could see Sterling trying to take it to the ground, although you know Sandhagen is good everywhere as well. I, could see, I definitely see Sandhagen taking center and then Sterling on the back foot, but... I say that because Sterling can fight off the back foot and win. A lot of guys can't. He can. So that should just be an absolutely incredible talent and a showcase of what that division offers. On the other side, O'Malley and Wineland is really, really compelling for a very different reason. Now, neither of those guys are currently in the rankings, so perhaps the winner will jump into the top 15. We'll have to see. But what makes it interesting to me is that you get a guy like Wineland, who is, not, is experienced and tough, fought tough guys, has a very unorthodox style. If you can get a young fighter who can apply their technique and not be tripped up by somebody who does things offbeat or unusually, like they can still make all the reads that they have to to adjust to that opponent... It's one of those signs that you're dealing with somebody very special. Now, even if he lost, that wouldn't necessarily mean he couldn't go on to great heights. But what I mean to say is, you know, he likes to be in a flow state and make reads and be quick and blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's, I'm not going to say easy to do, but it's somewhat more manageable against a person that is doing the kinds of things that you rationally expect from a training scenario and a fighting experience. But when they don't do that, when they do things a little bit unorthodox and in Eddie's case fair degree of it and you can still work around it it just means you have high fight IQ adaptability you know understanding of the game blah 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 there's so much you can do and so to me what's really interesting about that is that's going to be a great test to see um, Less so about Eddie Wineland because I think he's long in the tooth. I mean, I think he's closer to 40 than he is 30 at this point. But for for O'Malley, I, I, I just want to see what the kid's made out of. You know, he had that long break and he came back against uh, Quiñones and he looked awesome. Okay, well, let's see it against somebody who's not as conventional. Far from it, as a matter of fact. Big mover as well. And who can crack? Eddie Wineland's got some pop, too. You know, so he's a threat in that way. He's got more experience than virtually any opponent. That Sean O'Malley has had, and he's unusual. I want to see how the 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 breezy, kind of flowy style of a again, relatively inexperienced O'Malley deals with, with Wineland. It will tell you potentially a lot. It will tell you a lot. That should be uh, interesting, right? Very much looking forward to that. So those will both take place at UFC 250. Overall, the card, not that great, but They've got some gems along the way.
2: Boxing, culture, lifestyle, the
1: and Barack Show.
2: Floyd Mayweather, a while back, was kind of discrediting young fighters that are calling Manny out. And that's what Floyd's about. That's why Floyd fought Conor McGregor. Because it's business. It's about making the biggest payday. All these fighters want to fight each other, but there's a reason they call calling out, Manny, and you can't blame him, especially after the win he had against Keith Thurman, man. It's a business, man. It's prize fighting. Weekdays from noon till 3 Eastern. Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156.
1: Cobb, you have, uh, you know, I kind of lost track of the story, but you maintained it. So uh, why don't you tell us what you found? Um, we were talking about the story where all these rich folks... Had paid these like middlemen to fake their fail sons and fail daughters' resumes so they could get into elite colleges or just bribe the colleges outright. Um, but we have a, I think, a uh, sentence in the case of Lori Laughlin. This is who? Aunt Becky. What was her name? Yeah, Aunt Becky from Full House. All right, so what did the judge say?
2: All right, so I'm just uh, pulling the article back up. So they both got plea deals, her and her husband. Right. So her plea deal involves two months in prison,
1: oh, 150000 yes.
2: one hundred fifty thousand dollar fine, and two years of supervised release with a thousand hours of
1: community service. Now, supervised release—what does that mean exactly?
2: I don't know. I'm guessing it's—I'm guessing maybe you have to check in with a PO officer, something along those lines. Maybe
1: is a supervised release. Do they put like a tracking on you, or? Maybe, she she have to wear maybe. that for two years, does she?
2: I have to double check on what that actually means. But uh, her husband got it a little bit worse. So according to his plea, according to the plea deal he arranged, he is paying a two hundred fifty thousand dollar fine, Oof. five five months in prison, oh, and two years of supervised release with two hundred fifty hours of community service.
1: Jesus, he got it. Hers is like whatever. He got it bad. Yeah, I
2: don't remember Do we- what his co- if he was if he was worse than her for some reason, or maybe he is was the one who was directly involved in setting these things up.
1: Yeah, you know what? I think I remember when they initially announced this stuff. He had he was the one, he was the one who had initially concocted the scheme, and he was the one that had uh, done more handiwork to it. I'd actually forgotten that, but now that you are now that you read the sentences, that reminds me the particulars of it. I don't recall, but. Certainly his culpability, I mean, his, his, let's put it this way: his fingerprint was sort of all over this. Now, Cobb is of the belief, in general, I, I mean, in 99% of cases, I would actually agree with Cobb, which is that America's prisons are overrun with people who don't need to be there. Fair enough. I mean, who could argue otherwise? That is so true. On the other hand, dude, if you show me one more goddamn slip-up that the rich get to make, and then the only thing they have to do is pay their way out of it, I'm going to lose my mind. That, that, that the five months, I don't know if that's necessary, but I'll tell you what Cobb, the two months, I love everything about it. I want her to be making wine out of her toilet. I want her to get tattoos on her face, the whole nine yards, buddy, all two months of it, which she won't serve. She'll serve maybe a month and get out. But I got to tell you, Cobb, it makes, it makes my heart sing with joy to watch her go to jail.
2: Look, I get the sentiment. It's just a gross. And I, I'm not saying white collar crime shouldn't be punished. Kinda, but, dude. Here's the thing. In this particular scenario, like they didn't run a freaking Ponzi scheme where like uh, uh, m- hundreds of people lost their life savings and stuff like that. At most, at most, one person got hurt, and it's the kid who should have gone to the school instead of their idiotic daughter. That's the only person who got hurt. So this is just like taxpayers are going to have to pay now for a rich person to go to jail for two months for just doing what rich people do and paying their kids to get into a college.
1: So you know what they should have done? They should have sent him to jail. And then like, you have to pay for your time in jail so that the taxpayers don't have to foot the bill for it, which I guess in a sense, the fine kind of does sort of, I guess I'm not really sure, but that would be kind of awesome. Right. It's like whatever costs you incur in prison, you got to pay for them. Bucko rent room and board orange jumpsuit toilet wine, the whole nine yards, you got to pay for it. Would that change your opinion if they had to pay for it?
2: Ugh, maybe. It just still seems like a misuse of what jail is, is supposed to be there for.
1: Five months is long. I don't, I mean, you know, the guy's going to get the message after a, a couple of them, I think is probably fine. But you mentioned the Ponzi schemes. Well, yeah, dude, if you do a Ponzi scheme, you go to jail for years. I mean, I don't think anyone is saying is it's as bad. Two months to me seems fine. I don't think you're overcrowding prisons. At that point, you're just going to jail. You're not even prison anyway. She'll be going to like her county, you know, whatever minimum security joint. It's not that big a deal. She'll be in there with people who forged checks and, you know, stole cars, like whatever. Who cares? Send her in there. Let her learn that, you know, full house was her peak and that her daughters are failures and uh, let her get out. Her daughter put up a video on her YouTube channel. Remember her YouTube channel? Yeah,
2: I think she's back on it,
1: too. Yeah, she had like a million, um, uh, you know, no, she had, I think she had more than 2 million, more than 2 million uh, subscribers. And then she got caught on the channel being like, I don't care about schools. Uh, Her name is Olivia Jade. Let's see what, how many, uh, how many, uh, what was her last video? Oh, no, five months ago. She put up one everyday routine. It has 1.6 million views, Cobb. It has 30,000 downvotes. 30,000 downvotes. They don't give an F about her. That's what makes Uh, me
2: laugh about this whole crime. That's what I'm saying. Like, Who really got hurt in this quote-unquote crime?
1: In this particular case, probably what you're mentioning, but the, 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 the thing what the FBI is concerned about is, one, how much, remember, it was a giant operation. They caught because here's the thing. I don't know if it's the case with Lori Laughlin's kid or not, but they caught one guy who was doing this for rich parents everywhere. Uh, like he was involved in schools in Columbia, schools at Harvard or, you know, uh, admissions at Harvard, USC, whatever. And he was like outright faking profiles and the whole nine yards. He's going to get hemmed up big time. So if you want to talk about the scale of the crime, obviously that guy is more guilty, but you can't give, you can't knowingly give that guy money and not expect the the long arm of the law to come down on you. Ty, where do you come down on this? Do you want to see uh, Aunt Becky go to jail for a little while or are you like uh, Cobb or you think rich people should just be able to do what they want in society and we, we, we uh, plebs shouldn't be able to shower since Monday and do anything else about it?
0: Nah, we've got to regulate the amount that they can get away with. So I'm, I'm halfway in between you and Cobb. I don't, I don't think that this is too much of an issue, but there has to be some type of punitive damage uh, for, for what happened there. Of
1: course, two months is fine, but five is a little, I think five is a little much.
2: Yeah. I agree with you.
1: Yeah. Five months. I mean, Jesus Christ, dude, five months, you go to jail for five months for beating people up, you know, like badly or, or worse for that matter.
2: The streets are so much safer now that aunt becky and her husband are going to be in jail i'm glad, hey bro, I'm glad, I'm you, glad we're, he, we're regulating
1: <laughs> but here's the truth though you think that's the only person she's ever bribed to get her way into something or anyone else she's known yeah, my hunch just is the
2: first time she got caught <laughs> yeah
1: exactly my hunch is that this sort of like informal bribing cottage industry for various like places that mark elite life dude there's got to be i mean these people must do this routinely routinely they must consider that they have options in this direction it's just that this uh it's just the fbi was watching this time so i just
2: look at this story the same way i look at like when colleges get busted because the boosters paid an athlete to come to the school oh my god really you don't say like a rich person paid to get their kid in who couldn't make it who couldn't get into college on their own shocker let me grab my pearls because this is just mind-blowing this story right now it's ridiculous just yeah the it, this on you can give them
1: this is uh this is a little bit worse than that I, I grant you though it's a bit of a it's more of a it's more of a difference in degree versus kind uh you know or the you know like oh my dad donated five million dollars and we're now standing in the science department whose building is named after him you, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna get into the college a little bit easier you want to say something Ty
2: no i'm just laughing i think master p might have done that right this this for, sounds like a story master p might have done that for one of the schools in california i'm, I'm blanking on it right now I'll,
0: I'll tell you guys like when i get it but I, I think this this reminds me of a story about master p from a few
1: months ago yes master p the inventor of the term on mma cribs when he looked at a painting of him and one of his kids he didn't say it was eloquent or elegant he said it was eloquent truly a uh, man for all the people here uh in any event wrapping up this story listen our jails are full of people that don't need to be in there but a couple of months of old orange is a new black for olivia jade's mom and dad your boy is going to be doing a jig in the middle of the street fuck them folks is what i have to say
0: thanks for Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.